It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 249 for July 3rd, the day before Independence Day, recorded June 30th, the day before the day before the day before the day before Independence Day. A lot of photographs get taken around the 4th of July, and every photograph that comes out of your digital camera can be improved. Now, that may not be Alien Skin's premise for Exposure 3, but I think it'd be a good one. Back when photographers had dark rooms, they stocked a variety of films, chemicals, and papers because each had certain strengths and all had specific weaknesses. Today, you can't pick a film, at least if you're using a digital camera, and chemicals are no longer used, at least not in the darkroom. But Alien Skin's Exposure 3 makes it possible to achieve a variety of looks, and a related product called Blow Up 2 can quite literally save the day if all you have is a tiny image that needs to be turned into a large image. I'll tell you about both today. On the TechBiter World website, www.techbiter.com, you'll find the image I started with. My typical subjects, cats, are in the image. Chloe, a serious-looking cat, is in the foreground. Perseus, well, you can't tell much about him. He's sleeping in the background. This is an Adobe Camera Raw image. Before opening the image in Photoshop, I made a few modifications. I started by fixing the color balance and changing some of the geometric distortion that had occurred. The image, once I had done that, was ready for additional modification in Photoshop. With the image open in Photoshop, I opened the Filters menu and scrolled down to Alien Skin Exposure 3. The first choice is whether you want the final image to be monochrome or color. But we'll do both. Let's start with monochrome. One of the settings I found really brought back some memories. It's called Rodinol. Rodinol was a developer that could be used to increase the speed of black and white films, but the result would be a very pronounced grain structure. If you've ever used Rodinol, what you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website will look familiar. Or another possibility, maybe I want to make it look like it's an image that's an extreme blow-up from a small negative. Well, if you did that, you'd get graininess, you'd get soft focus, because it's just a tiny area somewhere on a 35mm negative. Exposure 3 does a very good job of capturing that look. Or let's go the other way. A very large piece of film, fine grain exposure. This is what a good black and white image looked like. Again, you'll see it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. So next, I selected a slight modification that improved detail in the shadow areas of the image and kicks up the grain just a bit. Black and white images could be manipulated in the darkroom, either by development or by using different types of paper, to increase contrast. On the computer, it's much easier. You just dial in the changes. Or you can dodge the edges to create a light vignette. Dodging and burning also could be done in the darkroom, but wow, they're a lot easier if you do them on the computer. Oh, and here's one. Remember the old Polaroid black and white prints? They were kind of blue and white, not black and white. As with all of the other applications from Alien Skin, Exposure 3 allows the user to modify the factory settings on each of several tabs. I decided that no change was needed on the color tab of my Polaroid image because the image accurately reflected what a Polaroid 
black and white print looked like. I did make some modifications on the tone tab, though, and you'll see what my final image looked like on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Then I decided to try the same image and switch over to the color settings. Well, these are even more varied than the monochrome settings, probably no surprise there. I started with one that faded all of the colors slightly, except for the reds. And for my final image, I decided to start with a Kodachrome look. When you're working with filters, it's important to view the image at 100% size, or one-to-one. Kodachrome 25 had a nice, tight grain pattern, and Exposure 3 replicates that perfectly. On the Color tab, I shifted the overall color slightly toward the warm side, then boosted the red saturation just a bit. When I was finished, I clicked OK, and Alien Skin's Exposure 3 returned the image to Photoshop. Because it works non-destructively, the new image was returned as a separate layer. So in a single file, I now have my black and white final image, my color final image, and the original. Take a look at the final final image on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Be sure to click the image so you can see it at more or less full size. And then there's Alien Skin Blowup. And I consider this to be the plug-in to create the least bad image. Sometimes the image you have isn't any good, and there's no way to make it great, but you might be able to make it acceptable. Case in point, I started with a photograph from 1998, taken with a Sony Mavica. If you don't remember those cameras, it's just as well. Sony chose to use floppy disks and to allow more than one or two photos on a disk to limit the size to 640 by 480 pixels. Also to conserve space, the camera applied an enormous amount of compression, so much compression that the artifacting was visible, even at full size. But that did keep the images to somewhere between 20K and 40K each. If you wanted to print one of those images, the largest acceptable print you could hope for would be about the size of a wall of print, 2 by 3 Forget anything larger than that, at least until now. Keep in mind that Alien Skin's Blow-Up 2 won't make a perfect enlargement. Nothing can do that. But it will make the least bad enlargement possible. You'll see what I started with on the TechBiter Worldwide website, a little bear on a sofa. Now, bear in mind, so to speak, that this image is just 640 pixels tall, 480 pixels wide. It is also severely compressed and suffers from horrific artifacting. Nevertheless, and I said the largest acceptable print we could make from this would be 2 by 3 inches, nevertheless, I'm going to try to make an 11 by 14 print from it. So I selected Inkjet Luster as the type of paper that I would have in the Inkjet printer, and that's where I started. Again, it's important to examine the image at 100% magnification. And that's what you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Note the squares in the image. That's the artifacting that results from extreme compression. So, there is no way to make this image great, or even good. But I can change some of the settings to remove compression artifacts. The higher this setting is, the more blur you'll see in the image. So you want to carefully choose the setting that eliminates as much of the artifacting as possible without making the image unacceptably blurry. I also increased edge sharpening just a little bit. You'll see two comparison images. 
first is what I would have been able to get by just enlarging the image. You'll notice that there are some very ugly, splotchy areas in the little bear's fur. After blow-up 2 processed the image, the result is noticeably softer, a bit fuzzy, but overall it's much more presentable. If the image you're starting with is low resolution, but one that has little or no artifacting, the result will be far better. For example, I started with a photograph taken at the Columbus Zoo. It began life as a raw image, 3,648 pixels by 2,736 pixels, a big image. And it was a raw image. I began by trimming a section from the center and ensuring that it was just 640 by 480 pixels. That's the same size as the image of the little bear from the Sony Mavica that I started with before. The difference is that there was no artifacting. I then scaled this image large enough to create an 11 by 14 print. That means the long side, which was originally 640 pixels, has been scaled up to 4,200 pixels. That is a 700% enlargement. And yes, it is slightly rough at 100% view, but only slightly. This would make an acceptable 11 by 14 print. If this isn't magic, you'll have to tell me what it is. All right, that was kind of hyperbole, because I know what it is. It's science and intelligence combined. Bottom line, five cats. If you are a photographer, you will want these alien skin applications. Exposure 3 offers a wide variety of color and monochrome presets, and the presets can be further modified so you'll achieve exactly the effect you're looking for. The audience for Blow Up 2 is more specialized, but this tool is invaluable for those times when all you have is a small image and you need a big image. There's simply no better, faster, or easier way to accomplish this difficult task. For more information, visit the Alien Skin website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. I'm going to try to avoid sounding like curmudgeonly old Andy Rooney, but I have to ask why nobody makes printed manuals anymore. But then I have to admit that the question would be a rhetorical question, because I already know why nobody makes printed manuals anymore. Two reasons, actually. First, they cost a lot of money to produce, and second, few people seem to use them or to miss them if they're not there. In the early 1980s, manuals were often half-sheets of paper with holes punched. They were placed inside miniature two-ring binders, and the binders were stored inside a box. I still have a word-perfect manual from that era. The book itself was about three inches wide. Then, manuals became perfect-bound affairs, and if ever a name was a misnomer, perfect-bound is it. Perfect-bound books are hard to use, they fall apart, but at least the manuals provided useful information for those of us who use them. Today's manuals are provided on the CD or DVD that contains the program, or as downloads from the manufacturer's website. And it's not just software, either. Cameras come with useless quick-start guides that explain how to insert the batteries and perform functions that anybody but a certified idiot will be able to figure out without help. But if you want to use one of the more advanced features, you need the manual. Now, this isn't a disaster if the missing documentation is for a computer application, because you'll be sitting in front of the computer when you need the manual. And particularly if you have a second screen, you can just open the manual on that screen and read it there. That assumes, of course, that what you need to look up isn't something that explains how to fix the computer or who to call in case the computer doesn't work. But what about a camera? 
With a camera, you'll probably be in a park or on vacation or at a zoo or at a wedding, not in front of your computer. So what are you going to do? Print the manual, 300 pages possibly on a laser printer, 300 full-size pages? Uh, I don't think so. How about copying the PDF to an electronic reader? Okay, but then you've got to carry the electronic reader along with you. I used to be able to carry the manual in the camera case so I could refer to it if needed. Now, any operation that I haven't committed to memory is unavailable. Is this unacceptable? I think so. I can understand not providing a manual if the software or the device you're selling sells for $100 or thereabouts. Profit margins at that price point are slim. But if you spend $500 or $1,000 or $5,000 for something, shouldn't you reasonably expect a complete and accurate manual? When I upgraded from UltraEdit to UltraEdit Studio so that I could use some of the features that are missing from the basic UltraEdit program, I thought about reasons that I use a text editor. In many cases, it's because I'm working on program code in PHP or tweaking HTML or CSS files. But other times, I use a text editor so that I don't get sidetracked by spell checking and formatting. Let me explain. When it comes to writing, our brains have essentially two modes. One is the creative mode or writing mode. The other is the analytic or editing mode. We can do one or the other, but not both. Or more accurately, if we try to perform both functions simultaneously, we're not going to do either one very well. Write first, then organize and edit. Initially, you shouldn't even worry about spelling or grammar. Just get the thoughts down. The problem with trying to write in a word processor is that you get sidetracked. Should this word be bold, or maybe it should be italic? Microsoft Word tells me I've spelled something wrong, so I'd better fix that. Oh, the grammar checker thinks I've made a mistake. I'd better investigate. All of these get in the way of writing. A text editor such as UltraEdit or UltraEdit Studio simplifies the process. There is no formatting. Unless you request it, nothing checks the spelling. You can turn on word wrap so that what you type doesn't extend off the right edge of the screen, but that's about all. This is the perfect environment for writing. But an application such as UltraEdit or UltraEdit Studio is invaluable when you're working in a programming language. Color coding is helpful. For example, the PHP code that you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website shows comments in green, variable names are orange, Constant values and certain other terms are blue, functions are brown, and quoted text is gray. This alone helps the developer keep things straight. Even more helpful, and one of the primary reasons that I upgraded to UltraEdit Studio may seem like a very small thing, it's the application's ability to automatically create closing punctuation. Values are passed to functions inside parentheses, so when the developer types the left parenthesis, the application automatically fills in the right parenthesis. This also works for curly braces and brackets. As one who constantly forgets to close parentheses, braces, and brackets, I can tell you that this functionality is well worth the extra cost of the Studio version. But UltraEdit is expensive, about 60 bucks, and UltraEdit Studio more so at $80. If you plan to use the application and want to keep it up to date, as I do, you can pay two and a half times the cost and then never have to pay for another update. For me, that's an equation that made a lot of sense. If you just need a basic text editor, the built-in Windows notepad may be sufficient, but I wouldn't recommend it. Instead, if you need a text editor and you need not to pay for it, 
Try Notepad++ instead. You'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website, as well as to UltraEdit and UltraEdit Studio. Either way, you'll do yourself a favor by writing in a plain text editor and saving the editing part of your brain until later. In short circuits, the Supreme Court this week invalidated a California law that regulates the sale or rental of violent video games to children. The ruling was 7-2. to two. Justices Clarence Thomas and Stephen Breyer were the dissenters, arguing that the majority's interpretation of the First Amendment was too broad. The California law sought to restrict the ideas to which children may be exposed. The Supreme Court upheld an earlier federal appeals court decision that the state's ban violated minors' rights under the First Amendment. Does this perhaps call into question laws that forbid the dissemination of pornography to minors? Is it all right to show minors scenes of mayhem and murder, but not of sexual intimacy? Justice Antonin Scalia wrote the opinion which said that there is a difference between protecting children from the depictions of sex and placing restrictions on depictions of violence. I happen to agree with the decision, but that doesn't mean that I feel children should be given unfettered access to scenes that depict violence. It does seem to me, though, that the restrictions should be imposed by parents and guardians. In his written opinion, Scalia cited books we give children to read, or read to them, that contain no shortage of gore. As examples, he cited the Brothers Grimm's fairy tales. The games the California law would have blocked are those such as Grand Theft Auto Vice City, Postal 2, Duke Nukem 3D, and Mortal Kombat. I can make no claim that any of these has any redeeming social value, no more, say, than Debbie Does Dallas. Retailers that sold or rented the games to anyone under 18 years of age would have been subject to $1,000 in fines for each infraction. Here's an opinion. Freedom of speech is an absolute. It exists or it doesn't. There is no partial freedom of speech. One might detest, for example, statements by the Reverend Fred Phelps and the members of his Westboro Baptist Church, but the First Amendment requires that even xenophobic, homophobic, full-of-hate ministers and their misguided flock be allowed to speak freely. The cloud is the future, and as the old joke goes, it always will be. Although some companies are moving away from desktop-based applications to Internet-based services, this is not something I would be comfortable suggesting to a client. Not yet, anyway. Maybe never. The New York Times carried a story this week by Steve Lohr in which he described a move by the Intercontinental Hotels Group, which is transitioning its 25,000 office employees to Google's office and email applications. The hotel group's chief information officer sees gigantic savings as a result of the change and says that nearly one-third of the conversion is complete. I hope the hotel chain has an extremely reliable Internet connection because what the organization will have when the conversion is complete is one gigantic single point of failure. If Intercontinental's network connection stops working, every employee will stop working because there will be no access to text documents, no access to spreadsheets, no access to email. When the applications are on the desktop computer, people can continue to work during network outages. Given what I've seen of network reliability, I wouldn't yet be ready to take that chance.
And beyond that, the online offerings don't include feature sets that are as robust as Microsoft's desk-based applications. They're not even as robust as the offerings from LibreOffice, which is the former OpenOffice project. And unlike their desktop-based counterparts, those web-based applications are not extensible. Nonetheless, Microsoft is answering Google's challenge with an online system of its own, Office 365. It includes Microsoft email, word processing, spreadsheet, presentations, and a collaboration application. This is essentially a bet-the-business wager for Microsoft. The online offering will steal some business from the PC-based products, and unless Office 365 is better than, or at least as good as, Google Docs, it could give Google a huge advantage. Google's advertised fee is $50 per user per year. But the company will not say what percentage of its users actually pay that fee. Microsoft's offerings will range from $24 per year, that would cover just email, to more than $300 per year for the full suite of applications. Although it's not an Internet-based offering, Adobe has recently started offering a rental plan for its applications so that users can pay just for the applications they need when they need them but the applications still run on desktop computers. Hmm. Maybe software rental is the future. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.